The thing that makes most cases prominent in the media is usually who the victim is, who the suspect is, or if it's a case where the details that are released just captures the attention of the public. In this case, it was the witnesses that made this case a national sensation. This is a case that has been part of case studies all over the world, from psychology professionals to law school students. This case was inspiration for episodes of Perry Mason, Law and & Order, and Law and & Order SVU, as well as many other documentaries. Malcolm Gladwell referred to this case in his book The Tipping Point. Several other books have been written on it, as well as songs that have been inspired by this case. And as much as this case has inspired people to retell the story, and you will see that there is a lot of blame on other people in this, but in the end, there was really only one person to be held accountable, the killer. But things easily could have turned out differently. I'm your host, Coy, and this is the story of Catherine Genovese and the 38 Witnesses. New York City. It's known around the world as the city that never sleeps, which is just one of its many, many nicknames. And it's easily just as much of a city of dreams as Los Angeles is. From some of the most expensive real estate in the world to startup companies to actors and actresses on Broadway, it's a city where people move from all over the world to chase a dream. After the 2020 lockdown, real estate mogul and YouTube personality Ryan Serhant coined it the comeback city. The city that will never lose. But on one night in 1960, it was a different story. For at least one night, it was the city that lost. Catherine Genovese was born on July 7, 1935 in Brooklyn, New York City. She went by her nickname, Kitty. Much of her childhood was spent there growing up in a brownstone townhouse in Park Slope neighborhood of Brooklyn. She had five younger siblings. In 1954, Kitty had recently graduated high school and her family moved to Connecticut after her mother witnessed a murder. But Kitty stayed in Brooklyn, living with her grandparents. She also got married in 1994, but the marriage was annulled by the end of 1994. She then moved into her own apartment and worked a few office jobs. By the late 1950s, she was a bartender. In 1961, Kitty got in trouble and was fined for bookmaking when she got caught taking bets at the bar for horse races. She and another friend were fined $50 and she lost her job. Kitty then got another job bartending at Eve's 11th Hour Bar in Queens. Not long after working there, she became a manager of the bar and began saving money with the dreams of one day opening an Italian restaurant with her dad. By 1963, Kitty was living in an apartment on Austin Street with her girlfriend, Mary Ann. Because of how times were back then, her relationship with Mary Ann was kept secret and they told everyone that they were just roommates. At 2.30 in the morning, on March 13, 1964, Kitty left the 11th hour bar to drive home. She was sitting at a traffic light when she caught someone's attention. She arrived home around 3.15, not realizing that she had been followed. Kitty parked the car 
in the parking lot and began walking to the door of her apartment building, about a hundred feet away from where she parked. This was when she noticed a man standing outside of his car, watching her. As Kitty walked toward the door, the man started walking that direction too, and at this point she knew he was watching her. As the man began picking up his pace, Kitty took off running to the door, and he began running after her too. The man ended up catching her and grabbing her from behind. He pulled a hunting knife and began stabbing her. Kitty began screaming for her life, yelling that she was being stabbed, yelling for help. Across the street was another apartment building, and several neighbors began waking up to the sound of Kitty screaming for her life. One man opened the window and yelled for the suspect to leave her alone. At that time, the suspect ran away. He got into a white, compact car and drove off. Kitty was seriously injured, bleeding, and began stumbling her way to the rear entrance of the building. As she struggled to walk, she rounded the corner of the building, and the witnesses lost sight of her. And the majority of them went back to what they were doing just before, which was mostly sleeping. Kitty made it to the hallway of her building. She collapsed on the floor, and just ten minutes later, the suspect returned. A witness saw the car park on the side of the street, and the suspect exited the car, this time wearing a fedora. He began searching the area, walking around the buildings, the parking lots, looking around cars, until he opened the door to the hallway that Kitty was in. She was barely conscious as she saw her attacker return, something that only seems like it should be out of a horror movie. She let out another scream for help as he began stabbing her, this time cutting her throat. He sexually assaulted her and stole $49 in cash before he disappeared. A neighbor and a friend of Kitty's, Sophia Farr, heard the second scream. She rushed from her apartment, and by the time she found where Kitty was, the suspect was gone. Sophia screamed for someone to call the police, and she held Kitty until an ambulance arrived. Kitty was picked up by the ambulance at 4.15 that morning and died while on the way to the hospital. When the police arrived on scene, they followed the blood trail from where Kitty's body was found to the street where the initial attack happened. As they looked up, they saw a lot of windows to the apartment buildings that were surrounding the area. Later that morning, with a lot more manpower, they went door to door looking for witnesses. They documented speaking to 38 witnesses, all of who either heard or saw something. Some described only hearing a scream, not knowing what it was but thinking that it was drunk people fighting in the street. And then they went back to bed. Some people said that by the time they looked out the window, no one was there. Then there were some people who saw a man over a woman beating her. One man said that he was the one who yelled out the window. The reasons why no one called the cops varied. Extensive psychology research has been done on this case. And one thing that came up was called the bystander effect. Studies have shown that when a lot of people witness a crime happening, it is less likely for it to get reported to police because everyone thinks that someone else will do it. There were also some people that thought that it was a domestic incident between a husband and wife and they just didn't want to get involved. Then some people said that when Kitty got up and staggered away, they thought that she was just drunk and she was going to be okay. There was one witness who was still looking out the window when the suspect returned. He was the one that was able to give a description of the white compact car and the fedora that the suspect was wearing. Out of the people who saw the suspect, the police got a lot of different descriptions. Some people said it was a white male, some said it was a black male, some even said that it was a female. Depending on different people's viewpoints, the suspect was either short or taller, 
The one thing that did seem pretty consistent, though, was that the suspect was slim. Investigators didn't have a lot to go off of. They did bring Mary in, in for questioning, and they questioned her for six hours. There are different theories on this, whether it was because they believed she was a real suspect or if it was just because that she was in a relationship with Kitty. Then the investigators started going about different ideas. They tried to figure out who would be the normal people that would be out on the streets around four in the morning. With this line of thinking, they came across a milkman. He stated that he was in the area at the time delivering milk. He said that he did see a guy walking on the street wearing a fedora. He was able to give a good description of the guy. He was a light-skinned black male about 5'8 and was slim. He also was able to give a good enough description of his face to work with a sketch artist and a sketch was developed. Now investigators had a face and a description of a car. On March 19, 1964, just six days after Kitty's murder, an older man, Raul Cleary, noticed something going on at his neighbor's house in the Ozone Park neighborhood of Queens. A man was walking out of the neighbor's house carrying a TV, and then he put it in his car. Raul knew his neighbors and had never seen that man before, so he confronted the man. The man was very polite and calm. He said that the homeowners hired him to move some stuff because they were moving. The man then walked back into the house. Raul went on to talk to another neighbor and asked them about it. That neighbor said that they knew for a fact that the homeowners were not moving. Raul then did something a little smart. He went to the car and he messed around with the engine, he did some stuff, and then he called the police. By the time that the man came out of the house again, he got in the car, but it wouldn't start. He tried to start it again, and it wouldn't start. The man remained calm, he exited the car and began to walk away, but it was too late. The police arrived and they arrested him as he was walking away from his white compact car. Alright, I promise this ad break won't be too long and you can get right back to listening to this episode, but I just wanted to take a minute to let you all know that I have a Patreon now. And for just a few bucks a month, you can help support this show, get extra episodes, and a few other perks with more on the way. And I just really greatly appreciate all the support, whether it's Patreon, leaving ratings, reviews, liking the Instagram, Facebook page, or just listening to this. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you all so much. And I don't think that was too long of an ad. Back to the episode. Back at the police precinct, the man was identified as Winston Mosley. Winston was 29 years old, he was married, had three kids, he had a great job at a manufacturing company, he owned a home, and he had no criminal record. He spoke to the investigators very calmly, polite, and was professional. He just didn't seem like the type of criminal they were expecting to be breaking into houses for TVs. But as the interview went on, he came out and told them about all the houses that he had broken into and he said that it was about 30 to 40 houses. The detective interviewing Winston for the burglary case was aware of Kitty's murder case, and he remembered one particular fact. The suspect left in a white, compact car. When the detective then saw the sketch of the suspect, he contacted the detectives in Kitty's case. 
And once they were all in a room together and Winston was asked about Kitty, he confessed almost immediately. He said that his wife worked night shift as a nurse. When she left around 9 that night, he left the house a little after her with the intention of sexually assaulting and killing a woman. He drove around for hours looking for his target, and he couldn't decide on anyone, and he was just about to give up and go home. But then he saw Kitty sitting at the red light. He followed her home, attacked her. He left when the man yelled out the window, but only parked right down the street, and a few minutes later he came back. This time, putting on a hat, he found where Kitty was, he sexually assaulted her, stabbed her more, and left her to die on the hallway floor. Winston confessed to two other sexual assaults and murders, but he was not charged in those cases, due to his testimony conflicting with the evidence that they had, and that someone else had already confessed to those cases. The trial began on June 8, 1964, and Winston pled not guilty by reason of insanity. The jury ended up finding him guilty and sentenced him to death. The judge residing over the case stated, I don't believe in capital punishment, but when I see a monster like this, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch myself. In June of 1967, the New York Court of Appeals found that Winston was not able to argue his case of insanity at the sentencing. They took the death penalty off this table and gave him life in prison. In March of 1968, Winston purposely injured himself bad enough to where he had to go to the hospital. While being transported back to the prison, he hit the correctional officer, stole his weapon, and fled to a vacant house in the small town of Grand Island, New York. Winston was able to hide out there until the homeowners came back three days later. When they entered the house, they were attacked by Winston. He tied them up, sexually assaulted the female, and then took their car and left. After an hour, they were able to free themselves. On March 22nd, he broke into another house where it was just a woman and her daughter. He held them hostage for two hours and then released them unharmed. Police were able to surround the house that Winston was in and he eventually gave up. He was sentenced to an additional 30 years to run concurrently with his life sentence. In 1984, Winston was eligible for parole. When he sat before the parole board, he showed no remorse for Kitty's murder. In fact, he tried to play the victim. He said that the victims of a murder, the pain only lasts a few minutes. But for the person who was caught, it lasts forever being in prison. He then said that he didn't consider her death to be a homicide because he didn't mean for her to die. So he was denied parole. Throughout the years, he never showed any remorse, all the way up until his death in March of 2016. He had been denied parole 18 times and Winston died in prison at 81 years old. A few things came from this case. One was that it was first reported in the New York Times that 38 people witnessed Kitty's murder and did not call the police. That number is a little misguided. 38 people were interviewed by police. That is not the amount of people that actually saw her attack. However, there were still plenty of people that saw the attack and did not call the police. Kitty's case is one that urgently increased the efforts into having a central emergency number. Before this, people had to call whatever local precinct they lived in to talk to whoever was working the desk. The 911 phone system was implemented in 1968. In a lot of stories, it's the bad stuff that catches the attention. The title that covered the headlines in this case was that 38 people didn't help. And again, this isn't really blaming them because really... The only one responsible is Winston. 
but there's no telling what could have happened. While the headlines still focused on 38 people, there was one person that did not make the headlines. Sophia. When Sophia heard the scream from Kitty, she found her, made someone call for help, and held Kitty until help arrived. She did all of this, seeing the injuries that Kitty had, not knowing if the killer was still around the area, and choosing to comfort her friend in her last moments. And this is going to bring us to a conclusion for this episode. If you can, please give the show a rating or a review on whatever platform you're listening. It helps out a lot. And you can follow Prime Nerds Podcast on Instagram or Facebook to see photos from this case. And thank you for listening.